Well, good morning. It's been an awesome morning already, and thank you guys for being here outside. Just want to say hi, and at home, if you're watching this, enjoying uh, drinking your coffee and your PJs. We're glad you're with us, and uh, we're uh, diving into a new series. Uh, Stephen closed us off last week. It was uh, an awesome, awesome uh, sermon. Don't you think he did a great job? I mean, I did give him the easiest passage you could ever preach, so I mean, I'm just kidding. That was, that was one of those really awkward, strange passages. He did a great job with it. We're starting a new series today called The God Hypothesis. We're going to talk a little science. We're going to talk a little philosophy. We're going to talk a little God. We're going to talk a little faith, and uh, honestly, it's, uh, it's going to bring up a lot of questions a lot of thoughts, and you're like, hey, where are you getting all this information from? I get it from a lot of books, but uh, predominantly, um, we're kind of copying off of Stephen Meyer, who uh, wrote this recent book called The Return of the God Hypothesis. If you're into science, you're a bit of a science geek, you'll, you'll love this book. It's, it's technical, it gets deep, it's philosophical, and if you're not at that level, we actually are offering up some other uh, options as well to kind of take you deeper into this conversation if you're interested, and to go even further into an understanding of, of all this stuff with God, science, and faith. And so if that's you, I'm glad you're with us and we're going to jump in. So let's open the series with prayer. Would you join with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you so much for what you've given us in Jesus, that we um, may know you, we may walk with you, we may enjoy your world and your creation and uh, the beauty of the exploration of that world. And God, as we are engaging in this series, we pray that you would open our minds and prepare our hearts as this is um, kind of turmoiled water we're going to be walking through. And we ask that you would just kind of um, settle our preconvictions down so that we could um, meet together and have um, this opportunity to learn from you and your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my family began recently uh, to watch an old series, 2000 series that was, is called Smallville. Anybody ever watch Smallville out there? Any Smallville fans? Okay. So Smallville is a Superman uh, show. And what's interesting is it's about Clark Kent growing up in Smallville. And the twist in this is that Clark Kent's good friend is actually Lex Luthor. And Lex Luthor, as you know, is the arch enemy of Superman in the comic books. And so for them to put these two together at the beginning and to be walking around in high school and stuff, it's been a fascinating kind of thing. You're almost like, I don't want Lex to go bad. Oh, I like Clark. Oh, this is really interesting. But the dynamic involved is something known today as something called frenemies. Anybody seen, know what frenemies are, right? Frenemies are two people who are seemingly friends, but have opposite opposing desires, visions, or are truly enemies, but are pressed together and find a mutual commonality. And so you'll know a bunch of frenemies as you start thinking through television shows and movies that are actually out there. I'll give you a couple more outside of a Clark and uh, Clark and Lex here. How, how about this one? Perry the Platypus and Dr. Doofenshmirtz. Anybody uh, know who these guys are? Okay, I got some young people going like, yeah, if you don't know who they are, Phineas and Ferb, um, these guys are awesome. Platy the Perry... Uh, <laughs> Perry, the platypus, is a, is a spy. He's always hunting down Doofenshmirtz, who's creating an innator of something. And so uh, it, it's kind of this pairing of spy versus bad guy and, and their close friends. I'll, I'll give you one that you're probably more common with, namely Dwight and Jim from The Office. These are frenemies. These guys can't stand each other, but throughout the series, you know they have to be together. They have to work together. And ultimately, they enjoy each other. Now, what's interesting about this is I bring up this frenemies conversation because I believe when we talk about the two, the two things, God, the being of God, and science, the idea of examining the world around us, most people, I believe, in the United States and even probably in our congregation would argue, at best, God and science are frenemies. 
You know, they get along in some cases, but they have opposing visions of reality. God wants you just to have faith and trust him. And there's angels and demons and all that stuff. And science is going to explain everything for you. There isn't any of that supernatural stuff. Don't worry about it. And so they, they get along sometimes, but ultimately they're just frenemies. Anybody agree with me? You know, some people who might feel that way. Maybe you do. And what I want to point out today is that I, I want to argue against that. I want to say that they're, they're not quite frenemies. You're like, you're right, they're enemies. And some of you actually may think that. You may be watching this going, that's right. Science has, has disproven God. Science has shown God is irrelevant. There's no need for him. Um, and so I'm going to invite you, if that's your consideration, to lean in a little bit today. Maybe to, to consider that there might be more information to take in. That there might be a different perspective on some things. And then some of you actually will argue also that, no, 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 you don't understand science and God are enemies in a sense, but you just don't care about science. You're a Christian. You believe you've, you've got faith. You trust Jesus Christ. He said it. You believe it, right? That's just what you need. And the last time you took a science class was in high school and you hated it. Okay. So I get that some of us, we're going to be in a world where science is irrelevant to us. And, and so you just have faith. You trust what God says. You're not worried about it. Now, the problem is when your son, your daughter, your grandchild becomes that person who engages with the documentaries, starts watching Cosmos or getting involved with um, their, college, um, their college biology courses, and they come home and they begin to ask you, the wizened grandfather, grandmother, parent, about your faith and how it fits with science. You cannot answer, well, I just have faith, I don't really care. And what I want to do is encourage you to not fall into the dangerous pit of thinking that God and science are opposed to each other, let alone frenemies, but actually that there's something greater, that they're actually with each other. They're, they're connected. There's something going on with science and God that we don't have to fear. Now, I also know that some of us are going to come at science from what I would call a, a non um, kind of uh, the popular version of what we know as science. Some of you guys are going to become from a young earth creationist theology and stuff. I'm going to set that aside for today. And what I'm going to do is actually take you on a journey into what I would consider, what most people would consider mainstream scientific thought and show you that even if you're dealing with mainstream scientific thought that would be taught at UCR or USC or you name it, you don't have to fear that God and science are enemies, let alone frenemies. So we're going to look at today, you may not agree with me, you may even think some of the stuff that I'm going to show you has been disproven, but I want you to lean in and consider maybe that this is the case. And yet right at the beginning, we have to stop and pause and realize that there is a major objection that is screaming in some people's heads who are watching this or in here today. And that is, look, science and God look like they are against each other. Let's just be honest. They at least appear to be enemies. I mean, the way that we hear it is it looks like these things are not connected. In fact, evolution seems to have revealed there is no need for God for all the species that we have on earth. I mean, if you've looked at, we have bacteria that actually evolved to be antibiotic. They, they can fight off the anti antibiotics. They are, they are resistant in the strains. We know that human beings are 98% uh, similar to chimpanzees. Maybe it's 80, depending on the debate, but that we're connected there, right? We, we've seen pictures like this in every science museum where you see the evolution of the whale. And we, we see this 
with the horse and we find all this information out there about how dinosaurs evolved into birds and we see scales elongating into feathers. If you've watched Discovery Channel or History Channel, you've got some of this information because evolution has shown that we don't need this kind of God that we're talking about who just creates things instantaneously. Astronomy has also given us a lot of new evidence. I mean, you dig into it and you find out there's billions of years, 13.5 billion years is the age of the universe at this point as they're refining it every year. And they're saying that's plenty of time, plenty of time for this kind of stuff to happen. In fact, we have found all kinds of habitable planets and we've only looked at a few locations and there are millions upon millions of galaxies with billions of solar systems with who knows how many planets just like this. And something's got to be habitable out there. There's got to be some kind of beings, creatures, things that are existing, that have evolved in there. And, and, and I guarantee you, they probably seeded the DNA on this planet or something blew up and uh, came to us and our asteroids. Because we know that it's really hard to get DNA, so it's got to come from somewhere. And so we see these habitable planets. We understand these things are out there. We realize that there is all this information. And besides, doesn't chemistry reveal even more so that all you are is a giant meat machine? I mean, let's be honest. You are a bunch of cells. You've got all kinds of chemical reactions happening inside of your cells. You've got DNA forming you and mutating and doing all this stuff. Even your brain is just firing neurons, giving you the assumption that you are alive, giving you the assumption that you have consciousness. It has explained it all away. And if we haven't figured out something yet, science will solve it. And therefore, God's at least irrelevant. And if he's irrelevant, then at least we know he probably didn't exist. That's the struggle. And I, I laid out, and some people are going, that's the weak arguments. Yeah, those are probably the weaker arguments. There's a lot more we could layer into that, but I don't have time to go into all that. But how can I be claiming that God and science are going to be somehow not frenemies with all that kind of information, Greg? Come on. Well, that's where I want to step back from. And I want us to look at the Bible for a second. I want us to look at the perspective the Bible gives us. Not, not from just like the details. I want to step back and give the general picture. What does the Bible say concerning all of this information we call science? And, and if you've got your Bible, you can find it. I want you to see it. If you, I really want you to pull one out this time because I want you to read it in your own eyes. And it's in Psalms chapter 19. If you have a, a Bible, Psalms in the middle. Um, if you're seeing a big, weird, uh, strange names like Ezekiel, Micah, you know, Malachi, go left and you'll find Psalms. Psalms. If you're seeing Genesis, Exodus, go right. It's kind of in the middle. Psalm 19 is written by a man named David. Now, David, if you're not familiar with your Bible or you're a new Bible student, David is actually the king of Israel, but he was a shepherd. He's, when he writes these Psalms, oftentimes he's just hanging out, out in the middle of a field. And remember, we're not talking about some king in the 21st century. We're not talking about a 20th century king or an 18th century, 14th. No, we're talking about a guy who's living roughly 3000 years ago. The stars he sees above were the stars his ancestors saw, which is the stars we saw. He has no reason to assume anything changes. He has no reason to assume that the world's going to be any, any different. I mean, the world's been pretty much the same as long as he can look into his annals of history. And yet, here's what he begins to say in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Thus, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. What an interesting phraseology. First of all, this young man staring up at the stars in the sky, looking at the birds flying by and the bats and all the things he's going, you know what this all declares? It shows you that God's amazing. That he's extremely not just amazing, the God, the God is glorious. Like he's really good at something. Like he gets the glory for it. Like a football player who, who manages an incredible touchdown and he jumps up and, they t- and then suddenly ESPN puts on for the glory. You know, this is kind of glory. He gets the highlight reel. And what we see about his highlight reel is that the world you're looking at is his handiwork. In other words, he says, when you examine and start walking around looking at the world, he's blown away at how smart, intelligent, creative, and powerful his God is to make everything this way. He's a master craftsman. The master craftsman. In fact, he goes into it even deeper where he says, day and day pours out speech. We're going to have some really weird glitches today, but don't worry about it. Day day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. And what's going on here is that word knowledge. You see it down there in your text. That word knowledge is interesting. It is actually a, the Hebrew term for the idea of receiving information from your senses, from your five senses, right? Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. This is the five senses. When you touch them and then you begin to ponder what you're engaged, you enter this kind of knowledge, You could literally define it as scientific knowledge because that's what scientific knowledge is. I want to examine with questions what I can explore with my senses and come to conclusions. And literally what David is saying is day to day and night to night pours out scientific knowledge. And it all points back to God being an amazing master craftsman. Now, he says, this isn't just limited to the Jewish people. He says, everybody gets to hear this. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That's weird, because if you think that there are all these ancient dudes like, yeah, I heard the stars talk to me. (laughs) They were like vibrating and humming. Look, we know. No, no, no. This is literally means when you don't have speech and you don't have words, what he means is there's information without verbal words. Guys, isn't that what science is? Science is information that you're receiving, not from words, but from looking at things and seeing patterns and seeing evidences of something and a hypothesis and it comes out to information. That's not with words. And yet it goes throughout all the earth. There are words to the end of the world. Everyone, everywhere on all the planet can receive this information. That something about scientific knowledge is available to every human being everywhere. In fact, the Bible puts it This way later, Paul will pick this up and he starts to apply Psalm 19 as he opens the book of Romans, a letter written to the city of Rome, to the church in Rome about his mission trip to Spain. And what he puts out there is he basically tells them, listen, I I want you to know all of humanity, guys, it's, it's got evidence about God. Starts off here in verse 19, says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning humanity. Because God has shown it to them. Where? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He says, if you just look at what's been made, if you look at what's been made since the creation of the world, you don't have any excuse to ignore it. You can't talk away from it because it's giving you knowledge about God. In fact, the way the Bible put it, and I think according to the Bible, no one can deny God's existence through science, period. 
You can't do it. It's, it's the Bible saying like, no, everything you keep exploring, it's just revealing how much greater this God actually is. Let me, let me give you a basic illustration of how I think about this. What you're looking at on the screen is a painting called Belshazzar's Feast by Rembrandt. Now, uh, this is an incredibly interesting painting. It's, it's, it's based on a story from Daniel where the hand of God appears and starts writing, many, many tekelum farsin. And, and so here is Belshazzar have, having a freak out, right? He's like staring at it with big old white eyes. People are freaked out in the corner and, and all this light's glowing off those. Now, here's what's weird. There's no light in the scene. That's paint. Don't forget, if you were to lean in, you would see every brush stroke. You'd begin to look at the paint. You'd begin to see how things were looking. But look at the turban for a minute compared to the skin tone. How did he do that? And you could dive in and you could realize what Rembrandt did is he made his own paints. He selected the paints and mixed them together in such a way that they represented the color he wanted. And then he used the appropriate brush strokes and techniques to make it look like fabric, hair, and skin, and light. Now we could dig in, we could look at the chemical composition of all of these different paints and tell you exactly how the chemistry works. And we could look at the fabric that was stretched and decide where it came from and when it was born and made and cut and all that. So we could do and all that. But here's the problem. When you get into getting the details and you don't step back to the full picture, you will miss the artistry. And often what happens in scientific knowledge, we become so specialized, so specific, so ingrained at looking at one function of a cell, you can begin to make yourself believe all kinds of crazy things because you haven't stepped back to look at the whole. So when you step back in scientific knowledge, you begin to take in the whole of it. You start realizing that every genetic system produces proteins that produces a cell. And that cell is a micro city that's working to develop more cities and energy to power that city. And then those cells come together through a sugar phosphate connection that begins to produce organs that they know where they connect and why they're a heart organ and not a liver organ. And those organs come together to produce a system. And that system comes together to produce an animal. And that animal runs around in a pack that's able to reproduce other little systems called animals and they run around in a pack and that pack runs around in an ecosystem and that ecosystem lives off of the predator prey conditions and all the other plants and animals that are born from those old factories and they're engaged in a larger ecosystem called the globe now the earth then is inside of a solar system that continues to move which is in part all part of a galaxy which is connected to a local group of galaxies which is part of a large system called the universe now take a minute and step back and think about that Tell me all you want about how ATP energizes a cell and go, we could see how that could possibly evolve. No, all of it? What you're missing is that the grand world around you, according to the Bible, is a great work of art that God invites you to explore. You are walking in his museum. And the fascinating beauty of the world around you and the intricacy and the intelligence does not cause you to fear science. No, what science is, is not God's frenemy. It's God's PR partner. Just as this shows the miracle and the wonder of Rembrandt's brain and capacity and skill. And we could have put anybody up there that was considered a genius in art. But when you dig down and you divide it to the pieces, you lose out on the artistry and you begin to have to step back and go, my goodness, how did they do this? How did this come together? And I want to argue that you guys, what we're seeing is the most probable realization that we are looking not at a random creation. We are looking 
at a great piece of art. Now, how can we possibly deny this? And I'll give you how. We get excited when I do it, when I talk about all the systems together, but wait a minute. If it's God's PR partner, it must not be talking about the right God. Because let's be quite honest. When you and I dive into the Bible, the world we see around us doesn't seem to really fit that picture of the Bible, now does it? Now, and this is the objection that they would give us. Look at Genesis chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, flip over there. We go to Genesis a lot here, I know that. But um, join with me here as we go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And what I want to show you is, is how scholars and uh, truly from all of this area, from Egyptology, Assyriology, history of Israel, all this stuff, shows how we are to understand this. And I actually do believe... This is what the Bible is saying. So hold on with me for a minute. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, time out right there, real quick. People will go, like, uh, good scientifically minded people will go, <clears throat> Greg, where are the waters in the cosmic waters? I don't see any cosmic waters anywhere out there. I mean, we, we're exploring space. We're not finding spaces filled with cosmic water. We're finding it's space, which is lots of space, empty space. We could store all of America's stuff up there and not have a problem, right? This is space. Where's the cosmic waters? Well, we got cosmic waters on the ground, right? We got our oceans and stuff, but we know those aren't cosmic waters. That's just H2O. In fact, what we begin to see is that this conception, which you're seeing here, is the conception of the Hebrew universe. Above would be this, this waters that are outside of even the stars and the planets and, and all that stuff. And the clouds are down here. And so there's this kind of first heaven, second heaven, third heaven mentality. And this Hebrew construction is found here in Genesis 1. First of all, the cosmic waters. Then he goes on. He says, you know, let there be light. So he makes light. And then he calls it one day and one night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate from the waters from the waters. And, and what's interesting here is that he names that water heaven. Sorry, that one's not there. And we've got this gap. Now you got the waters up there and you got the waters on the ground. And now what he's going to do is in day is the next day in day three, he's going to gather the waters under the heavens to be gathered together in one place and then let dry land appear. And it was so, and he calls the dry land earth and the waters seas. We call that a flat earth. And the Bible seems to indicate, at least in Genesis 1, a flat earth with the edges going into chaotic waters, which float down into the great deep, the abyss, where the demonic is held, and the Sheol, where the, where the souls of the departed remain. You've got a ferment, and then a high above is where all of this stuff is where the angels and God reside. Now, this is the ancient cosmology of the Hebrews. This is how they would paint the universe. Where's the globe? Like, Where's the galaxies? Like, the Bible's not getting this right. I mean, if, if the Bible's going to talk about science being God's PR partner, he sure isn't promoting the right vision. I mean, we got the wrong map on the screen, folks, don't we? And some of us are going to say, that's not what it says. It is actually what it says. So hang in there. Because what if the debate here against the Bible and Genesis 1 and the creation, this vision of the world, is less than we think it is? What if something's missing? Maybe something is really, truly missing in our, in our conversation, in our picture. I mean, let me put it this way. A few months ago, my wife and I are sound asleep in our bedroom. And next thing we know, we're both awoken by a loud thunk, thunk, thunk. And we're like, what in the world is that? Like, we're both sitting up. We're looking at each other in the dark, as best you can in the dark. And we're like, what in the world was that sound? 
And she's like, oh, is somebody here? And our first hypothesis is somebody's in the room, somebody's in the house, or somebody's in our backyard. And we quickly get up, we turn on our lights because that sound was loud. And we're like looking around. Well, that hypothesis was wrong because we expected there to be somebody in the house or somebody around. Nobody was there. So we're like, okay, what fell off the wall? That's our second hypothesis, right? That sounds loud enough. Something should fall off the wall. We expect to find something off the wall. We look around and look around and nothing's out of place. Everything's where it should be. The fan's still blowing. All the sound is. And we know what happened in the room because it was way too loud. And we're going, but nothing's on the ground. Nothing's fallen in the closet. There's nothing here. And suddenly my wife goes, hey, Greg, where's our kid's cell phone? And we're like, huh. So I look over and I'm like, I, you know, I thought it was there last night. I'm not quite sure. And she disappears, goes down the hallway. And so I'm looking around, still looking for the cell phone or looking for something. I'm like, it should be here, I think. Something made that sound. She comes back. She's like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe one of them took it. So I go and I check the kids. Check one, sleeping. Check two, sleeping. Check three, and I'm up on number three, whose cell phone it is, and I'm poking under number three, and I'm trying to find, I can't find any cell phone. Number three is out cold, not even moving. Climb down, go back. We look at each other, we're like, okay, something fell. We don't know what the sound was. Maybe, we'll just go to bed. And you know what, something's missing. We don't know what it is. We'll wait for the morning when there's more light. And I think that's the excuse a lot of us give ourselves. Man, all we need is just a little bit more light and it'll all figure it out. A little bit more light, it'll all figure it out. But I think something else is missing. I don't think we needed more light because within three minutes of us laying down, deciding we'll wait till morning and there'll be a little bit more light, suddenly we hear at our door. I walk over to the door, I open it up and there's one of my kids with that cell phone. I took the cell phone, dad. I was right. She was right. We figured it out. All the evidence pointed in the right direction, but we couldn't figure it out. Not because the evidence didn't point in the right direction, but because there was one human being involved and they didn't want us to figure it out. It's called human sin. What we often don't realize is that when it comes to evidence, we don't follow it to the full conclusion because we don't want to. I don't want that cell phone to be found. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the evidence to point in a direction I want it to. And look, obviously this doesn't paint the right picture. Does it not? See, my problem is I believe this. We've become so successful in our scientific ventures that we have become arrogant. And arrogance is sin. We really honestly believe we're smarter than these Hebrew people, those silly people with that weird looking world. I mean, who really thinks there's cosmic waters in the sky? Well, hold on, Mr. Smarty Pants. You do a scientific investigation without everything invented in the last 200 years. And here's how you would do it. You walk outside of your house in the middle of the day and you look up at the sky. What color is it if it's a clear day? Answer, blue. And you live by a lake and you look at the water on the lake. What color is the water on the lake? Huh, blue. Blue water, blue sky. Oh, look, the sky turned gray. The water turned gray. Wow, that's really weird. And, and, and who says there's no water in the sky? You smarty 21st century person. All I've ever seen fall from the sky is called water. It's called rain. Huh. There must be water up there. Is that not a logical scientific conclusion in an ancient world? 
And then you walk along the ground. You can only travel 26 miles a day if you walk all day long, if you're really going to do it. How far are you really going to get? You're really not going to begin to examine the curvature of the earth very well. It takes long caravans for some of these very grand populations to start figuring out the earth is spherical. The average common person would have thought, yeah, it's just flat. What do I care? It's flat that way. It's flat that way. And I make sure that this part that's not flat, I flatten it out so I can plant on it. You know, yeah, the earth's flat. And there seems to be water over there, the seafarer told me. And there's water over there, and the seafarer told me that. Seems to be water all over the place, so I have no illogical conclusion that this isn't flat. I mean, yeah, we can be arrogant because we got in a spaceship. Pretty cool. But don't knock them for not having one. They made a pretty reasonable conclusion. Yeah, but they thought the stars were, were beings moving across the sky. Is that so illogical? You think a force does it. That's weird. In the history of humanity, we're the first ones to go, it's a force. Well, where'd the force come from? A force doesn't come from anything. It's forces. They're just forces. Huh? That didn't make any sense. So I didn't wake up in the middle of the night when that cell phone was gone and go, I know what happened, Teresa. It's the force of cell phonity. It moves the cell phones all over the place without anybody touching them. That's what happens in your house, right? Something moves and they're like, I didn't do it. Nobody did it. Mr. Nobody is the, the poem we used to talk about. It's the, soul, it's the force of things moving without people touching them. That sounds absurd. That's exactly what it sounds like to them when we say the stars move. No, they didn't look at things and say, well, it moves because of a force. They always knew things move because someone moves things. Still basically true today. Why would we assume that they would think any differently when they look at things moving going, I only know people move things, persons move things, animated living things move things. Those are moving, therefore they must be living. That is not illogical. And we are so arrogant to assume that what we read here wasn't a good basic attempt at science. And you know what they do better than we do? They understood the supernatural far greater than we do. And they painted the supernatural in with the natural in such a manner that their map aligns better with the supernatural reality than our stars and universes and solar systems. So let's be careful before we become so intellectually snobbish about our current position to cast blame upon the ancient world. And maybe the God of the ancient world was speaking to an ancient people. And so he didn't speak to us in the scientific knowledge we do, but he spoke to them in a way they understood it to tell them, listen, when you look at this world, you're looking at my painting. When you look at me, you're finding me. And guess what? The only thing that's keeping you from finding me is you don't want the cell phone found. This is critical because when we examine scientific knowledge, I want you to remember this. Our expectations about the evidence we find helps us evaluate a hypothesis. You're like, this is a science class. Yes, let me explain this again. I woke up, my hypothesis was something fell off the wall. The expectation is something should be on the ground. The expectation about the evidence helps me see if my hypothesis was true. I didn't find anything on the ground, so it told me my hypothesis was what? false. Our expectations about the evidence helps us evaluate our hypothesis. And so let's do this because I believe this is the statement that we should believe. The expectations of our God's existence actually lines up with the evidence. And I'm talking about popular modern sciences evidences. You don't even have to, you don't even have to deny it. You can go right into those science classes. It will line up. 
with the evidence. You say, really? Yeah, check this out. Let's take a basic hypothesis given to us. Here's the God hypothesis. The first one out of the three that we're going to look at is that the universe had a beginning and thus one who began it. It's as simple as that. The hypothesis is God exists. Therefore, the universe has a beginning. Only the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament scriptures that follow proclaim that there's a beginning to time and a beginning to the universe. And that beginning came from a beginner named Yahweh, God. Now, the, uh, the, this comes again from Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. We don't need to go much further than that. That's the basis for all of our beliefs. I don't care if you're young earth, old earth, or upside down earth, the bottom line is we are going to believe God created everything. Amen? Amen. That's what the church says. Now, what's interesting about this is that the hypothesis of the materialist, the hypothesis of the one who doesn't believe in a God that, that exists, has to be this. The universe is all there is. Carl Sagan said it. The modern, the modern Cosmos series has said it. You must have this. We're all stardust. That's it. This is all that exists. You must have an eternal universe. And so what is their expectations? They should find an eternal universe. What does the evidence bring us? Well, let me take you on a quick story. Starting with our favorite American genius, Albert Einstein. Did you know they modeled Yoda's head off him? That's, real, that's why you like Yoda so much. We like Einstein for some reason because Einstein did some weird stuff. He actually, um, he was a, a, a mathematician, physicist, and he came up with what's called special relativity and general relativity. Now, special relativity is weird, and, but it's easy to understand in such a manner that as you approach the speed of light, time slows down for a fixed state for the observer. So, I'm watching a clock and I'm standing here and somebody takes off that way at the speed of light. Their clock is moving at their speed. My clock's moving at mine because time is trying to catch up through light. And so what he showed is, and you're like, my brain hurts. That's fine. Look at it later. The bottom line is in his special relativity, what he showed was that there is this thing called space time. They're one thing. They're not two things. You don't have space and time. You have space time. They're woven together. And so when you have space-time, it changed gravity. Gravity wasn't a force. Gravity was like a bowling ball sitting on a very large trampoline. You ever seen a very heavy object on a trampoline? Have you ever been the very heavy object on the trampoline, right? Okay, everything starts falling towards you because there's a space, a dent in that trampoline. Now, if you took a marble and threw it, it would start spinning if it was the right speed around that bowling ball until it fell into that. We call that orbit when it comes to very large objects in the universe. And so you have this relative relativity, general relativity of, of gravity. Now, what was weird about his calculations, and you know that one called E equals MC squared, right? What's weird about that is he shows that it's space and time and that this gravity is pulling everything together. So his question is, why is everything apart? And so in his calculations, he realized there has to be this expansion, this pressure that's pushing things out. And so he understood that it was basically like, and then he calculated that there were fingers, I'll call them fingers, holding the universe together, okay? He called it the cosmological constant. There had to be a pressure exerting enough energy to keep everything constant because he needed an eternal universe because he couldn't allow for a dynamic universe. He couldn't allow for a universe that was expanding or contracting because that would imply something he didn't want to believe in. Well, L.A. changes everything all the time. And so L.A. steps in in this mess. And a guy named Edwin Hubble. And Edwin Hubble sits down. Anybody been to the awesome telescope in the middle of the lit up L.A. field there? And it's, um, it's passing my brain for a minute. Shout it out. 
Griffith, the Griffith Observatory. He sits down and Edwin Hubble examines through the telescope at the nearest stars as they knew them and finds out those aren't stars, those are galaxies. And he does a, he does a test on them where you can determine the color ratio of what kind of light is coming off the star. And the problem was for the calculations of distance and everything, there, the problem with the star was it was too red. And when a star is too red or something is too red in a, in a light spectrum, it means it's going away from you. If it's too blue, it means it's coming towards you. If it's the same color, it means it's standing still. And so he realized there's this red shift on the spectrum. It should be here, but it's over here. And they call it the red shift. And what they were finding out, which was really weird, is that the things that were the furthest away were going away even faster than the things that were closer. Now, I have some dots you can't see on here anymore because for some reason, the first blow just destroyed them. But these dots are really close together when it's deflated. But when you... The more you inflate it, the further these very unseen dots are. They get, they get further and further away. Now, what's interesting is the further away they are, the faster they move away from each other as everything expands. And what they were looking at is, is they knew that if you rewound the clock, I got to do that, yeah, that things got closer together. And they were like, oh, that's really interesting. Einstein saw it and he went, okay, I'm wrong. I can't say it's a constant universe. It is a dynamic universe. And so Edwin Hubble shows that there is this thing about the universe. It's expanding. It's growing larger. And in fact, today we know that it's got enough, it doesn't have enough mass to recontract. It's just going to keep on going. And what's interesting about this is that they still didn't want to believe it. Until along comes the other super famous scientist of the United States, or that we love anyway in the United States, named Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking steps in his doctoral dissertation and studies the curvature of the edge of the universe. And he realizes there's a curve in the universe if it's expanding. And we see this calculated out in all their mathematics and crazy stuff they think about. And they realize that if it's deflating, that that curve gets infinitely smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And as he worked with Roger Penrose, who was calculated and predicted the first black holes, he came to the conclusion at the beginning of the universe was an infinitely dense, infinitely curved singularity. We call that in the Christian world, Nothing. And what's interesting about that nothing is it's at the beginning of not just space, but space-time. And as they came to the calculation, he freaks out later in life, so sure that he's proven the existence of God. He adds, he inserts, we had to talk about this in the kitchen, so I'm throwing it in. He inserts imaginary numbers into his final book to calculate the end of the world and says, see, there is no beginning because if I put these imaginary numbers in, it creates imaginary time and that's what we're looking at. And all the good scientists have come up and said, yeah, well, you got to pull the imaginary numbers out eventually and then time pops back in. There's a beginning. In fact, one of the big, they, they started calling this the Big Bang after one of the uh, Catholic professors came to the same conclusions. He was a monk out in Europe. And they go, oh, you're just making a Big Bang about this whole thing. That's what's hit. We call it the Big Bang. We make fun of it. We think it's some giant explosion. It's not. It's a giant collection of energy that is ordering and orienting things according to the laws of science. In fact, there was a prediction that there would be a background, a cosmic background radiation that should be visible, but they could never find it until one day there was a strange situation, I think it was in the 70s or the 80s, where they were getting some some AT&T was getting some bad radiation problems. They couldn't figure out what it was. So when they finally went and examined it and took a photo of it, it wound up being the cosmic background radiation, which we have pictures of today, matching exactly the predictions they were looking for when it came to the Big Bang. 
And so now you suddenly have this evidence that, yes, this universe has a big bang. And the big bang says, whether you like it or not, there's a beginning. And if you believe in the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible tells you that this universe ought to have a beginning. And so our expectation when we go into the universe is to look for what? A beginning. And what did we find? A beginning. But if you're a materialist, you don't believe in a God, you need an eternal universe. And the evidence is not stating that. The evidence is saying it had a beginning and it's expanded out. Say, no, 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 no. We believe in an oscillating universe. Up and down, up and down, right? That's what it means. Oscillating universe, in and out, in and out. I'm sorry. The calculations are showing that entropy would accumulate so greatly that you cannot, after an infinite amount of series, have a universe. And so this universe can't exist at this time because there should be an infinite amount behind us. Some point, we ran out of energy. We ran out of order. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we don't need the oscillating universe. We just have Loki. If you know what I'm talking about, if you watch Loki or you know what Loki's talking about, Loki is, is the first Marvel attempt to talk about the multiverse. Man, they really don't want me talking about this today. There's like, I said, Apple's like, mess it up. No, I'm just kidding. Conspiracy talk? No, I'm just joking. But the point is here that they don't want the universe. So they've created a concept of the multiverse. Now, I find that interesting because it is difficult to get to a multiverse because it is considered the supernatural materialist position. So why is it a super? Because you, it's not of our nature. It's not of our world. It's a super world above our world of a quantum field that is burping out universes at random places and stuff like that. Well, several issues, and we'll get into the multiverse a lot in, over the next few weeks, but let me just give you this, the, the first basis reason why we're pretty confident there's no such thing as a multiverse. If I have two little universes and they've been expanding for infinity and then popping or, or falling, falling back in, and you have an infinite amount of universes going over an infinite amount of time, then guess what? They're running into each other. And we know that if two universes with two different sets of physics run into each other, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pop them. That's just going to be ridiculous. They pop. This universe shouldn't be here. We've been here long enough that something should have expanded into us. The multiverse is claiming that there should be an infinite amount of universes. We should be colliding into each other. There shouldn't be universes. I could go into the Valencum theories and all that stuff, but we don't need to do that right now. Um, it's too hard to explain the short amount of time I've got left. Let me just put it this way. Right now, the probability of the God of the Bible existing is far greater than him not. That's not proof. I'm not saying it's proof. I'm saying it's probabilities. It's far more likely God exists. In fact, especially when you see weird stuff like this in Isaiah. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. Uh, how does a 6th century BC prophet look into the sky, which has never changed, and go, yeah, God stretched that out. He expanded it like a tent. Huh? The expectations of our God's existence line up with the evidence. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. He didn't prove there's a God. Okay, let me put it this way. There is one more piece of scientific evidence we hold. And it's about causation. 
See, what people are waiting for and looking for in a multiverse and all this oscillation is another physical cause that can start the universe. Because when you have a singularity, all physical causes, all laws of science, all material, all matter, all energy, all time is squeezed into this infinite point, okay? There is nothing material, nothing, no physical cause outside of it, folks. That's what a universe is. There's only one cause known to be outside of matter. And you and I use it every day. It's called the personal cause. When you choose to do something, you're choosing it for a reason, not because you have to. You are not determined by the laws of physics to do the things you are. If you believe that, doubt what you believe because you were determined to believe that. Grind on that later. And the point is simply this. The only cause we know scientifically that exists in this universe is the personal. And the personal, according to NDEs, according to near-death experiences and all kinds of stuff, points to a cause above the material. And if you're looking at a cause beyond the universe and beyond time that exists that is personal, then what you are staring at is the wonder and the amazement of an art piece designed by a personal craftsman who is a master. He doesn't use paint. He used matter, energy, and intelligence, information, to design the wonder of what we find in science. They're not frenemies. They're not enemies. My friends, science is God's PR system shouting about the kind of artist and creator he is. But what about doubt? If God's so good at this, what about doubt? That's not expected in your hypothesis. Shouldn't there be a hypothesis that says, if God exists, there should be no doubt? No, 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 no. Remember, something's still missing. See, Paul actually says, you see the wonder of the nature of the creation, and you see God, but he says, we suppress the truth because of our unrighteousness, our sin. And I get it. You may be watching this. You may be sitting here going, like, I don't want to believe this. And that's the truth. Doubt comes from not wanting. Because you know someone that you don't want to tell them they're, what they're doing with their life is bad and God doesn't like it. You don't want to believe God would have moral rules over you. And I would just advise you, don't use science as an excuse to tell God you don't want, to, want him to rule you. Just tell him you don't, want to, you don't want him to rule you. Because the probability of his existence is so great, you're going to have to tell him or you're going to have to follow him. And the bottom line is we struggle with this fact. We don't want there to be a God when all of it points to the great artist. But here's also the fact. You may be nervous that there may be a God. You may be sitting there going, I don't want there to be a God. I don't like this stuff. I'm looking for an answer. I'll figure something out and you'll go find. There's lots of weird stuff out there. Trust me, you'll go string theory, M theory. You'll go find something. But the bottom line is, when you lean into this reality, that God who created everything is the artist inviting you to come learn from him. Don't just stare at the art. Meet the artist. He's not here to condemn you. He's here to invite you into the wonder of how he made you, into the wonder of the world that he's created. He's inviting you to come follow him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and raise from the dead to give you life. You go, raise from the dead. Hey, if you think that chemistry can mix together to produce life, it's not hard to believe that the being who created everything and made life once can do it again. Amen? He can do it in you. He can make us alive again to him. 
bring us back into his relationship. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ bore our sin and our rebellion. He took it away because he wants to invite us into his relationship. He rose from the dead so that in his life, we would have an eternal life. One in which entropy and death wouldn't possess us anymore. But he would bring us back. What we see is it's far more likely this God exists than he doesn't. Even in the sense of modern science. And I'm not even done. We've got a couple more. So maybe you're not ready to say, yeah, I'm going to follow that God. But maybe you need to come in and be ready for the next challenge and the next one. So I think there's far more in this God hypothesis than you, than you probably predict. And I want to encourage you to consider that this God doesn't hate you. He doesn't want to destroy you. Although he may not be happy with your sin and he may not be happy with your rebellion, he's inviting you to be forgiven and to come into a life so you can know the artist of the grand art that we're all exploring. Would you bow your heads with me? At home, even if you're here today and you're saying, yep, you nailed me. I've been trying to hide from this God. I want to ask that you would um, take this moment and approach him. And if all you need today is just say, God, would you just reveal yourself to me? Then start there. But maybe you've been resistant and you've been at church for a while, but you're ready to say, you know what? I'm going to trust that Jesus Christ has done this because God exists. And I want to give you a chance to do so right now. If that's you in this room, you're saying, yeah, I trust. I need to trust. I need to follow this God who created everything. And I'm going to trust that Jesus bore that sin for me. Um, If that's you, I want to give you a chance online or outside or right here and just you're putting your hand up inside. You're just saying, it's me. You're letting somebody know online by just typing it in or, or answering that prompt on the screen. If that's you, just pray this with me. You say, God in heaven, I know, I realize you made everything and that I have rebelled against you. God, I have sin that I need you to take care of. I trust that Jesus Christ bore my sins on the cross. I trust that he rose from the dead and that you can give me a new start on life. Will you now come into my life? Will you be the artist in my life to train me and lead me now? That I would obey and walk with you all the way into eternity. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Now, if you made that decision, we'd love to connect with you. Let us know. There's connection cards in the seats there. And it says um, that uh, that you just pull out, it says uh, decision. I made a decision. Pull that, use that. Online, you can do that. You can use text. Best thing to do is just come talk to us. We got to meet the family going on. Just come up and, and talk with us. We'd love to connect with you. Otherwise, may God bless you as you explore the world of science and God. They're not frenemies. They're not enemies. Guys, it's something we don't have to be afraid of and we can completely enjoy. Lord, bless them and use them. Thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Stephen, after you, my friend. Yeah, you can clap. It's all right. Well, before you leave today, I just wanted to let you know a few things. You saw the baby dedications today, and they were awesome. But next week, we're also doing baptism. So it's another moment for us to celebrate with each other. The other thing is, is that we are having holidays come up. Sometimes that's difficult for some people. We typically have lost, a lot of us have lost loved ones. So they are offering a grief share class that starts next week. So I want you to know if you're having a hard time, let us know. We would like to help. Also on November 14th, if you like pancakes, they're having a pancake breakfast 
Uh, it's a youth fundraiser for winter camp, so that's great. Pancakes are good. Uh, and it's at 10.30 in the courtyard after the first service and before the second service, so get here for your pancakes. But before you go, I don't want to leave here with us not being able to, to talk to one another. There's some time. I know some of you have to rush off to get your kids, but, you know, say hello, stand up, greet someone, say science is cool, God is cool, and just be blessed that you guys go before you go. Say hi to someone. Say hello. And thank you guys for coming out. God bless you guys.